0: resist I think under the prompting of the Holy Spirit to look at a passage such as this one to celebrate our single service tradition that we're beginning we're all gathered together in corporate devotion and a few people just said Jeff why don't you just come up with something to celebrate this event this new start with us worshiping together as one body in the same um, congregation and I think the Lord led me to Acts chapter 2, I really do. And there is such strength in this very familiar passage as I dug a little bit underneath the surface that I want to share with you that I hope will be a blessing to you as well. The word church comes from the Greek word ekklesia, which if you break that word apart, ek and kaleo, kaleo is to call out. And uh, if the ek is out, so it's, you know, ek, ekklesia, to be called out of your homes into the congregation. That's where you get the word ekklesia. It's used in, uh, in um, Greco-Roman times as uh, the assembly, the general assemblies that would gather together for co- government reasons, but the church... Conscripted that word for itself to say, listen, we are gathering together as the people of God as a congregation. That's what ecclesia means. We are gathered as the local, visible expression of the kingdom of God on earth. This gathering is a otherworldly gathering it's different than anything else that goes on in our day-to-day lives that we live it should be a holy moment where you're gathered with spirit-filled people where we are body parts with each other co-joined to each other with the power of the Holy Spirit and the doctrine of the gospel that we agree on so this is a spiritual gathering It is a holy, set-apart gathering where the church, the early church, met on the first day of the week, which we call Sunday, what the early church called the Lord's Day, to commemorate the resurrection where Jesus died on a Friday and rose on the first day of the week. The Lord's Day, as we gather as the Lord's people. I want it to be special for you, and I know that No church is perfect and we have our ups and downs, we have our bumps and bruises, we have our disagreements, we have our preferences and deferences dynamic like any church. But I, at the same time, want you in your hearts to soar above those things and set apart the fact that you are part of a local spiritual body as of supreme importance to your life. We are interconnected to each other. We are an expression visibly... Of the kingdom of god on earth jesus said it best when he instructed the disciples to pray in this way matthew 6 10 your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven this is god's will being done on earth as god builds his church which he promises to build let me read to you the purest first expression of the local church gathering this is sort of the age of innocence for the local church this is where the 3,000 gathered after Pentecost when Peter preached and the 120 were there they were spirit filled and then God called saved and baptized they followed in baptism 3,000 that were incorporated into the church and this is what they were all about as the purest unmatched picture of the local church verses 42 through 47 acts chapter 2 and they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common those who were being saved. What I want you to see here in this text is that they had a corporate devotion to the Lord and each other, and that corporate devotion was a catalyst for blessing, a catalyst for otherworldly kingdom demonstrations that were taking place in the body of Christ as it was assembled visibly and locally. There was a cause and effect that was taking place. Their early corporate ongoing devotion set the conditions for God to flood the church with early blessing, heaven on earth. And I want us to look at this. Let's look at the catalyst. The catalyst is verse 42. This is what they uh, did early as they were incorporated in the church. Uh, Easy categories to follow here. Verse 42 they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, first and foremost. The idea of devoted by the way is repeated in verse 46 as well in other places. It's uh, a significant word. It's the idea that they are um, continuing together in devotion. There's an ongoing nature to what is happening. They're swept up in devotion to these things. They are incorporated into the body and all about or fully committed perseveringly to these actions devotion they were engaged together you know the church is not to be built on corporate success strategies the church is being built by corporate devotion not programs devotion to the Lord and that's the idea that's the that's the heart of this paragraph it was as if look 3,000 people got saved and they all just started devoting themselves they didn't have sleepy habits um, to undo they weren't you know caught up in well this is what my parents have always done so I'm doing no they were all about it all together all the time as a church And the first thing that they were devoted to is the Apostles' teaching. The reason that you have it listed as the Apostles' teaching is to connote the serious authority of what they were being taught. The Apostles were messengers of Christ. Christ had personally called each of the Apostles, and so they were personally touched by the Lord. And so... They were assigned to speak as New Testament prophets the word of the living God. And the apostles' teaching, the direct application to us in the church in this day and age, in the 21st century, is this. This is the apostles' teaching. This is what they, as the early church, were coming under, and this is why you come under the apostles' authoritative teaching. It's as if you had... 3,000 new kindergartner, young baby Christians at the feet of the apostles who were teaching Christ's message to them. They were talking about Jesus' life, his ministry, his miracles, the resurrection, that the significance of the gospel is all foreshadowed in the Old Testament. It's being fulfilled in the kingdom of God because Jesus died, was buried, and rose again for our sins. He ascended, and then I'm sure they were repeating what Jesus had just taught them where he said, go out into all the world and preach and be a witness for Jesus Christ. And so these teachings were very early and significant and weighty teachings for the people of God. They were devoted to the word of God. Listen, they were, as Acts 2 talks about, spirit-filled. Remember this, that the Spirit of God descended upon the 120 who were in the upper room, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Jesus' brothers, and you've got all of them in the room, and they're speaking in tongues and and speaking known languages to the populace, to the people of God, and they're proclaiming the Word of God. But I love what John Stott, the late pastor from the UK, said about this. He said there's no contradiction between being Spirit-filled and being intellectual. There's no contradiction between having the Holy Spirit and thinking deeply about God's Word. Those things coalesce and go together. I was saying in Sunday school class before that, I remember being in some college Bible studies and say, look, we just want the Holy Spirit. We don't want that doctrine stuff. Give us Jesus. It's like, what? You know, no, 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 no. We want the Holy Spirit, and we want the Spirit's blessing through the Spirit-inspired truth that goes into our hearts and enlivens us about the Lord. There's no contradiction between being affected by the Holy Spirit and the spirit of truth as he's called throughout the New Testament. Well, the second thing that was the catalyst of corporate devotion that brought blessing is devotion to fellowship. They were devoted to each other. Koinonia. They were um, in love with each other. 3,000 people. Hey, nice to meet you. Um, we're from different regions of the world. We're all here for Pentecost, and we're sticking around as a local assembly, and we love each other in corporate koinonia. Koinonia. It's relationships. It's having a common commitment Christ and the Word of God. And as, uh, as John Stott also put it, it's what we share in. It's what we share in together, and it's what we share out like the Thanksgiving blessing, like crisis pregnancy center, like Bible studies, like uh, witnessing to other people. It's what we share in, in common, and what we share out in common mission. Koinonia. Thirdly, they were devoted to worship. It's the breaking of bread. Now the breaking of bread is sort of two things here in one sense it's sharing of food and resources but I think that there is the early symbolism of the communion or the Lord's table that they were experiencing and enjoying together um, picking up from the feast of Passover what Jesus constituted as the um, Lord's Table or the Lord's Supper, what we observe monthly here at Anchorage Grace Church, uh, it's the breaking of bread, which is the symbol of Jesus as He was torn apart on the cross, and we remember that gift, that suffering, sacrifice, and servant as the Lamb of God died for our sins, and that's what the early church was doing. Also, they were having what Jude twelve and Second uh, Peter speaks to, which is the love feast. The love feast together and it's one of the reasons why as a church we have it now calendared that um, about four or more maybe eight times a year we're gonna you know gather as one service and then we'll end our service in a love feast where we'll have baptisms and we'll have eating together it's our you know our pot providence together you know potluck dinner where we eat and enjoy fellowship in the Lord it's where you have uh, Christian conversations Christian conversations. And then, fourthly, they were devoted to prayer. Now, notice this is not individual praying. I know that a lot of us are more comfortable praying individually, but this is a corporate prayer time. Corporate praying together. There's something very powerful about praying and having the same mind on the same prayer request, on the same themes of the gospel together. The power of prayer corporate prayer acts 1 14 all these with one accord were devoting same word same idea corporate devotion devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and mary the mother of jesus and his brothers you see the family dynamic male and female everybody together everybody's family and everybody's play, praying together what does god do when this happens well there are some results that take place and i call these results demonstrations of the kingdom of god on earth These demonstrations are powerful, they're early church demonstrations, but they're ones that we should in principle look for in our church today. We should have high expectations of the mighty power of God in our congregation, in and through us as we are a church gathered as the people of God in Anchorage. We should expect that God's going to bless and do marvelous things amongst us as his people. And so these demonstrations begin, I'm listing them first as God's power, verse 43. God's power was on display, and you see this in verse 43. And awe came upon every soul. Stop there, awe. This is the Greek word phobos, you hear that word phobia, fear. People were gripped in fear, holy fear of the Lord. You ever been there where you go, ah, you know, I don't want to do that or I don't want to go there in my heart because I fear the Lord. It's a healthy dread of God's holiness who is set apart as creator. He's not our chummy buddy that we snuggle up to. He is God, very God, creator, and we are the created. And we, we're drawn somehow by the Holy Spirit to fear and to seek the one who is holy fire set apart from us. And fear was gripping every person, every soul specifically. That word soul makes me think that the emphasis is on the 3,000. The 3,000 new believers, they were getting it. They, they were understanding that God is to be reverentially worshipped. And there was fear gripping people spiritually. I think unbelievers were, were experiencing that fear as well. What, what should the fear be like? Let me just say this. Uh, you know, maybe I'll use this as an analogy. Uh, you're in Anchorage, so there's some mountains to climb here. You know, let's say you climb up to a mountaintop and you're kind of inspired. It's expansive. It's it's massive. Uh, Anchorage is dramatic and beautiful. It's It's super beautiful and there's a million ways to die here, right? I mean, it's just dramatic. It's kind of awful and wonderful and so you kind of walk out to the edge and you get woozy in your head and your heart's pounding and you're just enjoying the expanse around you. That's what this is like it's it's God and and you you're drawn towards him who is holy who could snuff you out in an instant you you want to touch the holy mountain don't you you know you're you're tempted in that way and yet you rever- reverentially lay back in healthy dread of the Lord whom you love most of all that's the dynamic here it's the idea that God is here, and so we fear him. He's a dangerous God, and it was gripping every soul, and it was authenticating. God's power, this demonstration of power, was authenticated through miracles. He was present, and it was vindicated through miracles. Many, verse 43, wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Who was doing the um, signs and wonders? Well, the Holy Spirit through designated apostles this is uppercase a work this is not lowercase a apostles these were these were very distinct set apart men who had seen visibly the Christ the risen Christ that was one of the qualifications you remember Judas Iscariot was taking out taken out he took himself out and then Matthias was affirmed through the casting of lots because Matthias was one of the two candidates who had seen the living Christ Paul on the Damascus road saw the Living Christ, though blinded yet through the eyes of faith and a vision, saw the living Christ, and so he was affirmed as an apostle. These are the ones who were messengers continuing the ministry of Christ visibly through signs and wonders. And I don't want you to take these lightly. I know there's a lot of signs and wonders, things that go on today in the name of Christ. But a sign and a wonder, uh, though many of them were happening at this time, they were very, very much watershed events that were commemorated, celebrated. That man was blind. That man was, was lame. And that person walks that's a miracle of God. And there, it's irrefutable that that, that that could be anything but God. It's God that did it. That's what a miracle's like. Miracles A lot of times in the church, we attribute a lot of things to miracle power, and we say, "Well, that was a miracle, this was a miracle. But it's important to understand that when a miraculous healing takes place, it's, it's whole. It, it's not part doctor, part um, God. It's what God does that is super. Or supranatural. It's not naturally healing. God heals through natural means and physical doctors. And I believe he also heals supernaturally. Outside of doctors as the great physician. That's what a miracle is. It's something that is only of God. And it was filling 3,000 people and the community around with fear. It's like, Whoa it's not normal church, this is whoa, you know, there are things that happen here that are scary and awesome, like Ananias and Sapphira, hey, we're giving you part of our gift, and um, they're lying about it, and pretending on stage about that, and they lied to the Holy Spirit, and they died, wow, I don't want to mess around with that God, that's a power demonstration of the Holy Spirit. Number two, not only demonstrations of God's power in the church, but also demonstrations of personal sacrifice. Verses 44 through 45. And this was by the whole community. Look at this. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Now, I want to just make this, this point up front. Um, this is not, um, you know, Socialism. Now that's sort of a hot political topic these days, you know, are we becoming socialistic with medicine and things like that? This this isn't socialism, this isn't um, early communism as some sort of political idea. This was the church in its earliest stage in a unique time at a unique event throwing in all together. And yes, they gave to the poor, but I want to emphasize the fact that a lot of the new early Christians were losing their jobs and their livelihood because they were becoming Christians. So when you became a Christian in this Jewish community, people were saying, listen, you're fired. And so the church picked up their salaries. They, They helped each other in this early, very persecuted time. This is not a political statement about how things should be in the church, a lot of you know, cults and groups and even the whole monastic s- system, monasteries where people come into those things and say, hey, we, all, we have all things in common, so we can kind of relax and study Scripture together. That idea really undermines other principles in Scripture. Think about it. Um, in 1 Thessalonians, the Bible says that if you don't, or 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if you don't work, you don't eat. Remember that? 1 Timothy 5, you know, he who does not provide for his own is worse than an unbeliever. Hey, we're called to work a job. We're called to provide for our family. We're 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 created in the image of God. God's a creator, and we're supposed to create. We're supposed to build. We're supposed to enterprise. We're supposed to gain resources. Why? So we can provide for our family, and we can give more away. You work a job you you make more so you can give more so you can provide so you can do things and build and God has created us in his image to do things creatively for the glory of God and I think sometimes people take a verse like this and twist it out of context the Jewish early sects used to uh, you know the Essenes would meet together under what they called Damascus law or Damascus rule and sort of principalize this as communism um, Jewish style and that's not what this is talking about at all even in Acts chapter 5 when Ananias and Sapphira were confronted by Peter where they were pretending on stage with what they had they had sold their land and then they were pretending to give all the money and proceeds from the selling of that and uh, they lied about it well listen to what Peter says Ananias uh, while it remained unsold your property did it not remain your own in other words you owned it and after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? So uh, Peter was affirming the fact that you own things, you own property, and you've at your discretion and your disposal, you can give however much you want. But the point isn't that they didn't give it all, it's just that they were pretending about it. That's why they were struck dead. But my point is that it's right to own things and to sell things, give things, and keep things. Um, and you'll see later on, the early Christians still owned their homes. Why? Because it says that they were breaking bread together in their homes. And so I just want to point that out. Don't know why I'm so fired up about that. But anyway, it's just interesting. And the principle here is, look, giving for those who are in need. You see that in verse 45? All the, say, all the proceeds as any had need. You know it's a blessing? It's a blessing to give something to somebody else and meet a need. You know this. This is part of a means of grace to you. It's not really a blessing just to keep it all and count it all and hope that it helps you later on as much as it is to give some of it away and to give regularly, but then to find that specific need and to give it to somebody, and you experience, it, you experience great blessing together. Deuteronomy 15, 4, in the promised land, there will be no poor among you. As you see people who are poor and needy, you give to them, and it proves that God is real in your life and in other people's lives. I heard one person say that when you're struggling and you're in debt and somebody meets your need, you never forget it. You never forget it. It's a beautiful thing. Um, I, you know, my wife... Uh, her birthday was was this week. Uh, happy birthday, <laughs> happy birthday. Um, yeah, and and my kids, six of them, they get it. They get the idea of blessing and giving. I, I was surprised at what they did. I we all. Wanted to have a little giving time and buying a presents for, for mommy. And so I took all six. This is dangerous. I took all six to a place. And I went to Walgreens, right? Right down the street. Okay, there's high, high pollutant stuff here. I mean, it's the general store, right, at Huffman Square. And so we go into the general store, descend upon the place. And I say, okay, everybody get your buddy. Everybody gets a buddy, right? Two by two, I send them out to converge on the place. There's mirrors and cameras everywhere. And I'm just lost in my own world, you know, buying my own stuff for Judy, right? So I'm, you know, buying a few things. They get some cool stuff at Walgreens, right? Did I say Walgreens? That's what I meant. And, and so I come up to the front, come up to the front. I'm expecting to fork out some money. I mean, you know, you go into Walgreens and think I'm going to spend, you know, but really it, it adds up quick. And, and so all the kids were already standing there checked out with their bag because they had taken their own money out of their own envelope and given all of it to mom, in the form of gifts. Talk about hitting a home run for birthday. Yes, yes. Anyway, but it was good. And I, I think it's a good metaphor and an analogy for sharing and giving out of the overflow of what you have. And more specifically, as you see a need, you should meet a need. All right, number three. There were demonstrations of, of power in the early church. There were demonstrations of personal sacrifice from the whole community. And then demonstrations of ongoing Worship, ongoing worship, verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together. Stop there. This is where that corporate devotion word is underneath the English language again. It's repeated on purpose. Same word that verse 42 begins with, with them being devoted together. This ongoing day after day attending the temple is corporate devotion. And notice, I mean, these are early church Jewish Christians. They didn't just run away from the public arena. They didn't run away from their tradition. They went into a corporate gathering spot that was public, and it was risky because now they're New Testament Christians. They're not Jews anymore, per se, in terms of religion, they're coming out of that and saying Christ has fulfilled the Old Testament, but they're showing up publicly and corporately, and they're looking for a place for 3,000 people to gather as a megachurch and worship together. They're not continuing the sacrificial system, of course. I mean, the lamb who is slain is their sacrifice, but they're going to pray. And I think also going for a venue to preach, where as a witness, day after day, they're witnessing publicly in this institution, corporately, by tradition, out loud, on display, preaching that Christ has fulfilled the Old Testament, just like Jesus did when he showed up to the temple and took out the scroll and said, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Isaiah 53, I'm the lamb. I mean, those things um, were happening. And Paul, when he went to the temple as a missionary preacher, he was preaching, edifying, teaching, dialoguing, doing the things that we do as we gather corporately, publicly here. And I just want to say, it's risky to come to a public Church. It is. It's going to become more and more risky in our culture as we come together and we say the things that the Bible says that the culture more and more aggressively disagrees with and is more violent against. And we will stand together publicly, corporately for truth. That's the call. And that's what they were doing out loud and on display day after day literally throughout the days continually devoted in one accord in the temple that's what the original language says throughout the days continually devoted in one accord in the temple they needed a central place to go you know there's a trend uh uh, george barna who's a published uh statistician but he's also tried to build theology on his uh statistics and that Led him into error and he began to um, write books one called revolutionary or revolution and it's the revolution of Christians leaving public church Uh, leave the church is basically the message of the book and be okay with being the individualized Christian who uh, meets Jesus on the golf course instead of coming to church. And, you know, what's the difference type thing? And, you know, it's, there's everything right about meeting Jesus out in creation, but not to the expense of forsaking the assembly, which Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 directly addresses. Don't forsake the assembly of yourselves together, as some were in the habit of doing. That book is all about the bad habit of leaving the church. And there's nothing in the New Testament um, that teaches this kind of radical individualism. Now, that's formal worship. And then secondly, there is informal worship that rounds out the health of the Christian. Do you see that? Um, look at this. They were day by day and breaking, verse 46, breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. They're breaking bread in their homes. Now, again, I think this points to um, the communion, what we um, do, where we eat bread. Um, oftentimes, uh, kind of home-cooked bread, I don't know if you know that, but a lot of times the bread is actually prepared um, for us that day or the night before for us to eat, and then it's broken to pieces for us to eat, and, and so it's a special um, family time where we're gathered, and I know that, you know, we're, we're gathered locally, and, and we're gathering as the whole, but they did this um, in homes, and it was the idea of, you know, symbolizing um, the ripped Flesh, the body of Christ, as they remembered that sacrifice for their sins, and then I have to also say they had a love feast together. I mean, they were receiving their food, and 1 Corinthians eleven alludes to this. I mean, there's the the commemorative um, New Testament version of the Passover that you find in First Corinthians eleven, but there's also the sense in which you were having a whole meal together, a holy meal. I read, uh, you know, this week or last, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, how he talked about Christian conversations. When's the last time you had a Christian conversation around a holy meal? Now, I'm not trying to make Christianity so segmented from one conversation to the other. Everything should be to glorify God, whether we eat or drink or whatsoever we do, do all to the glory of God. But there is something very distinct and special about getting beneath the surface on a heart level where you talk about Jesus with each other. That's part of growing in grace. And the friends that I call on the phone long distance are the ones that want to have a Christian conversation. Those are the important ones, the ones that edify. you got to have that in your life. That's what the early church was doing. All right, so let's look at the last, the last demonstration of power the last demonstration was church growth and I want the end of verse 46 to feed into verse 47 of this point because as they were receiving food together their testimony of look at the end of verse 46 they were glad and had generous hearts those two words actually are are two very important words and I think this translation might be better they were exulting not exulting exulting and they had the simplicity of faith. Those are the two word ideas at the end of verse 46. Exulting. What does exalt mean? It means to be affected by truth at a level where your heart and your words and your, your speech are soaring over the truth. You're exulting about God's grace. I mean, you exalt God. You want to lift him high with your heart and your worship, but the the speech behind that exultation, that exulting, is where the word of God so affects you that it energizes you in Christian conversation, in worship, in Bible study, where you're, you're just overflowing with joy in your heart and in your life. You're exulting. And then you're doing it in the simplicity of faith. Now, the church and the gospel will say that the gospel is so simple that a child can believe it. And I believe that. The Bible, you know, tells us that we should not leave the the simplicity of faith. We should always know that, Jesus loves me and and he died for my sins and rose again on the third day and forgave me and can enter into my life and any child can believe that and should but not to the expense of also believing that the gospel is deep it's deeper than any ocean and it's profound and we will plumb the depths of God's grace in the gospel throughout all of eternity It's heaven, heaven on earth is joy and exulting over the simplicity of the gospel and the deep profundity of God's saving grace that we will worship around those themes in heaven. It's heaven on earth when we find the depth and simplicity of the gospel. When people do that, verse 47 happens, that's my point. When you have God in your heart and you're unashamedly, exulting over it guess what you become I'm gonna use this word attractive spiritually to people it is very attractive now the gospel is an offense and people see it as a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense and it turns people away because they don't want their sin exposed they people who want to hide in the dark don't want the light I understand all that but there this is saying it differently it's both there's a sense in which when you're When the light of the Lord is on your face, on your countenance, and you're facing hard circumstances with joy, there's something very irresistible to that kind of testimony. And this is where we find it. It's where God grows his church through that kind of testimony. Verse 47, the people were praising God and having favor with all the people. The word favor is the word grace. God's grace, the smell of heaven was on this church. People sensed the kingdom of God was here and they were drawn through that kind of testimony. That's why I think it's important for us to gather corporately. It's important for us to enliven each other spiritually to be a testimony and Anchorage that will draw other people. But I will say this, the emphasis on church growth here is not on the people. It's on a person. on God who grows the church God does look at this praising God and having favor with all the people this is God's grace using us or using the church and then look at this in verse 47 and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved who added to the church the Lord did Now listen, let me make this point and make it very clear. When the Lord saves someone, he's adding that someone to the church. He doesn't save us to be individuals out on our own, trying to make it on our own spiritually. He adds someone to the church. Let me reverse that idea by just going to church or creating a church environment where you can get as many people here as possible, um, where where the line between the church and the world is kind of blurred, where you make the church and you dress it up to be a fun place like the world to get as many people here as possible, that's not adding to the church either. But on the other hand when someone gets saved they're part of the church and they should show up visibly to a bible believing god-fearing local church where the demonstrations of power are available and avail themselves as the local church body so who adds to the church god does and when he adds to the church he adds when he saves someone he adds them to the church if you have no appetite to be part of a church or part of the people of God, you have to soul search and examine yourself to see if the Lord has really added you. Has he added you or has he not added you? And by the way, let me say this as well. It's God's prerogative to add someone to the church. We don't add people to the church. We can take people to church, but we're not the one who adds them. God is the one who stands at the front door of his church and adds people in. That's his prerogative. That's his right. That's his sovereign rule over his church to add people to the church. So how do you make the church feel for unbelievers? I want unbelievers to come here. I'm hoping if you are an unbeliever that you'll, be here i want you to come back to here i want you to worship with us i want you to hear the word of god with us i want you to be around the people of god as an unbeliever but make no mistake you're either under christ as a believer or you're still under satan's rule as an unbeliever and i don't want to make the church a place where someone who's under satan's rule i don't want them to feel totally comfortable here because i want jesus and the awe of god factor to be here so that unbelievers will feel uncomfortable about their sin and will repent of their sins, and then the Lord, by his grace and mercy, will add that unbeliever to become a believer added to our flock. That's church. That's the way it works. And he was adding people daily because they were were setting the stage, they were doing the disciplines of grace in the church, and the Lord was blessing that and adding people. First 1 Corinthians 14.25, it says it best. It Sort of that paragraph around 1 Corinthians 14.25 gives a situation where an unbeliever attends the assembly and is hearing the preached word or the prophesied word in the church. And it says, the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you, Here, let me just say it this way. We're the church, the ecclesia. We're called out of our homes to gather together as the people of God. That's what I'm celebrating um, from Scripture. And one of the best metaphors of a church is we're a family. We're a family. You're, you have older people, younger people, middle-aged People, got little kids. Part of being church is being a family. And as I get older in my family, my personal family, uh, older in parenting, I have situations where I find myself and Judy finds herself running kids back and forth to events where you're going in a million directions, right? And you're trying to juggle all these balls. And as my wife reminded me this week and reminds me often, if we as a family don't sometimes on regularity come all together we're in the same room or eating the same meal together if you don't do that you put your family at risk and you risk breaking apart you risk losing family members and so we're called by God to be one body and we're drawn together in this visible expression of that I'm not against multi-services and churches but this is a special opportunity for us to come together and be the family of God and hopefully set the table for the demonstrations of God's power to be on display through us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. We thank you, God, for a passage like this that's so clear.